1: This podcast is brought to you by Tethered. Now with deer seasons winding down, it is a great time to take the plunge into saddle hunting, especially if you've been considering it. Maybe you've just wanted to try out the gear before you made a purchase. So with that, our friends at Tethered are always coming up with ways to help saddle hunters. And this year they're doing the Tethered Teach and Train Tour, and it's hitting 20 different cities. And the session is 100% free to attend, where you'll be able to try out all their gear. So here's what's happening or what is also included in the event. There's a free lunch or dinner, depending on the time of the event, all their saddle hunting gear will be in one place, so you can test absolutely everything that they have. And then there's going to be lots of giveaways and freebies. There's event-only pricing and discounts on tethered gear. And then there's insider access on some gear, so you'll get a sneak peek as to some of the things that are yet to be uh, to be released. And then there will also, of course, be saddle hunting experts there available to answer any of your questions while you're hanging and trying out the different gear. So head over to tetherednation.com and check out the Teach and Train Tour page to see the list of cities and dates. Uh, I'm planning to be at the event on May 28th through the 31st at the Seven Springs tax shoot. So I hope to see you all there. The first thing I do in the morning before a hunt, before a scout, or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee, and I'm sure most of you out there listening are the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skullbrew Coffee, as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to skullbrewcoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand deer hunting podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 167. Today we're talking Missouri hunts, public land challenge, and the new Phantom Saddle by Tethered with my good buddy, Greg Godfrey. So stay tuned. All right, all right, all right. What is going on? Happy Wednesday to all of you out there. Hope you are feeling well. Hope you are feeling fine. I'm gonna be hundred percent honest with you today and say that I am not feeling hundred percent uh as I record this. We had a a shindig at the house last night that ran a little late into the uh into you know, into the evening and uh the dog of course was barking at promptly at six thirty this morning to wake me up since he had to go outside, so Uh, I was really looking forward to having just a little bit more sleep than that to try to uh, recuperate, but uh, the dog had other plans. But I got a cool show for you today. Uh, But before we get into that, I'll just kind of recap what I've been up to lately. You know, it is the season for shed and uh, shed season, of course, and scouting. You know, I do shed hunt a little from time to time. You know, you've heard me talk about it on here. Uh, but I'm not a, a a complete shed nut I wouldn't go as far as to say that I do enjoy getting out but it really it turns into a scout and that's and that's what I did this past weekend I know I'd mentioned there's a couple different pieces of public that I was trying to get to and uh there was one that was a couple thousand acres that I wanted to try to check out and so I headed to that this past weekend on Saturday morning with the pup uh and had a little bit of time before uh we had had to you know the shindig started at my house and so I wanted to get out for a couple hours in the morning did that had two places kind of marked that uh, what looked like to me on the map to be clear cuts, and I I'd never been on here you know this piece before, and so you know the 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 trick is is that how acu- accurate are the maps you're looking at, and then how accurately are you interpreting what you're seeing on the maps, and so in this case I wasn't really interpreting them uh, accurately at all. I mean it looked like clear cuts, but once I got in there and started scouting, you know it was um, just basically they were at one point clear cuts, and it was super thick, but it was you know, the variety that there's, you know, everything's kind of grown up to the point that there's not really much understory there. So there's not a lot of browse in there for the deer, um, big kind of boulder fields and, and, and stuff like that, huge rocks to kind of try to navigate through and stuff like that. So I didn't really see much deer sign at all while I was in there. There was one spot that I ran across that might've been decent. It was kind of, you know, kind of what Greg and I ran into there a couple of weeks ago, a mountaintop swamp, but this one was a much older, um, you know, clear cut that was surrounding it. So even, even within that, there wasn't any, there was, was zero sign that I'd found. Um, and I also found some sign of, of, of folks who were, were hunting that particular area. There was a tree that was marked up from a climber that was pretty clear. And then to seal the deal below that tree, uh, someone had dropped their quiver with their crossbow bolts and left it lay there. Um, and so I found that. So, that of course was off the list that and there wasn't really much there to to try to hunt there anyway so it wasn't like i was planning to you know put any time into that spot uh so then i kind of jumped out of there and it was time to try to head back home so my plan was you know really as i was walking back to try to see if there were, i saw any places or rubs or rub lines where they started you know near the the walk out to where i could kind of mark and then maybe come back in the future and scout those rub lines out or if it is in fact a rub line and check those out a little further because as i said this is a big piece it's like it's over 3,000 acres, um, a big piece for around here at least. Um, so I'm going to have to hit it a couple more times to kind of hit all the interest points that I have there. But on my way out, I did find one area that was of interest where it was probably you know what was for sure the best sign that I had found. What had originally caught my eye was just like this little grassy area where it looked like a good place where deer would kind of stage before they would kind of cross this, this access road. And so I walked back in there. And as soon as I walked back in there, I saw, you know, a a deer, you know, some tracks, you know, there was no, you know, big buck tracks or anything like that, but it was just at least a place where I had seen where deer were spending time and that's how they were traveling. So I started kind of looking around and sure enough, there was a rub that was there that was an old rub, but you know, at least I had some historical sign that was like of decent size. And so I was like, okay, so there's been bucks that had been, had spent time here in the past. I kind of walked back that path, you know, or that deer trail, maybe 50 yards or so. And I found a couple more rubs. And, uh, and then on my way out, actually I had, uh, I found two that were fresh from this year that were decent. So I marked that on the map where I was like, all right, you know, and it's actually in the opposite direction from which I came, but man, I'll tell you what, it's a pretty far hike back in, back in here. So it's one of those things where I'm going to go hike it and check it out. But I mean, the sign is going to have to be pretty undeniable and pretty slamming for me to make a walk back, back in there. Um, you know, that far, cause I want to say it was probably, Man, it was probably a good two and a half, maybe. Eh, I don't think it was quite three, but it was probably two and a half miles. So I did a, a total of about, about six miles yesterday on the loop that I did, and that place would have been at about the halfway point. So, um, and then it was it was pretty close to you know two and a half to three to get out. So, it, it, it's a place that unless there's just knock down, drag out, stupid sign, I'm probably not going to spend any time hunting now. I will finish scouting it, but, um. You know, even for me, that's a hike that I'm only going to make if if I know that there's something back there that's worth that's worth chasing. So, you know, with that, I did pull one last camera that I had out, uh, had set up, and was really kind of holding out hope. It was in the area that I had found a shed at the end of, end of December, and I was holding out hope that I would get a couple bucks on this camera to tell me that there were a few on this particular piece. Uh, I ended up hanging the camera in, uh, during late season when I went in for a late season hunt, more as I knew it was probably going to be the last time I was going to be in there, so I hung the camera just to kind of do an inventory of. Of what bucks might have made it through the through the year and this is in an area that i had hunted last year and this year and last year had great deer this year i i had a hard time finding any bucks to try to chase in this particular area uh, at least on camera and uh, and this camera was pretty much dead too i was pretty disappointed there was a few young bucks but i was expecting to see at least you know one of the shooters or a shooter you know that i hadn't seen yet before because i'd never run cameras on this particular piece but it was a pretty uh disappointing card pool. Um so in all this year, my card pools, you know, in the eastern part of PA are have been pretty um, you know, early season. I had a couple decent deer that I got on and had some opportunities with. But other than that, most of the places I thought were gonna be really good this year just were uh I had Squad Douche for uh for for trail camera pictures. So that's kind of the scouting update and deer update, the but I I did mention, you know, having a little bit of a late night, and that is because last night Um, as I'm recording this on a Sunday, um, my wife and I throw an annual wine tasting paired with wild game. Um, and the reason we do that is for one, we invite some folks over who are non hunters and stuff like that, which are, who are friends of ours and get them, you know, allow them the opportunity to experience wild game. And, um, and sometimes, you know, we, we try to invite a few new folks every year um, you know, that may not be as uh familiar with hunting, the hunting culture and and so on and so forth. So it's really an opportunity for us to get together with some folks, uh, pair some good food with some good wine, and then open up conversation around hunting and conservation and, and, and all those things. So it's an easy way to have that that conversation with people who may um not have you know, a, a lot of a lot of background on those on those topics. So that's what we did last night. It was killer. Uh, a few folks I had to call out because they were sick, and I was glad that they weren't, you know, willing to bring over their their stomach bug to our house. So that was so that was good. But uh, on the menu, what we had, I'll share the menu with you. I made an Instagram post about it. But we had chucker and pheasant nuggets, which uh, and venison al pastor, which was brought over by a new friend of mine. His name is Trap. That uh that that lives close by. He uh, his wife and my wife actually work together. Uh, which was super cool. He's a, he's a hunter, of course. Uh, my wife made some moose carbonate, carbonat, I think it's carbonat uh, stew. Um, basically, it's it's moose with beer in it. It turned into a stew. That's how I look at it. Um, and then a roasted duck with mango chutney. So that was on the menu. And then we tasted a bunch of different wines. And I know I've talked about this wine company in the past because we did this last year. It's called One Hope Wine. It's a cause. Uh, related business. So every bottle of wine that they sell, they have a cause that's associated with it. So whether it's autism or, um, kids with disabilities or, you know, uh, you know, helping, you know, women who are in abusive relationships or whatever the case is, you know, every, each type of wine that they have has a cause associated with it. So my wife are happy to, to support them, uh, knowing that our, our funds are going to a good place. But the cool thing is, is when we do these wine tasting parties, um, every, so they, you taste a bunch of wines and we do this mystery tasting and they give a bottle of wine away if whoever guesses the wines correctly or whatever. And then, you know, you can order cases and stuff like that. And the cool thing that they do is when they throw these parties at your house, um, they donate 10% of everything they sell at your party, uh, to a, um, uh, to a charity of your choosing. And so my wife and I, uh, donate that ten, our 10% to a conservation, a local conservation organization, the, Her, uh, the Heritage Conservancy, which I'm a member of, which is super cool. So you know, these are easy ways to give back to conservation. Um, is just by having a party and drinking wine and eating good food. So it's not always necessarily that you have to, you know, you know, do you know, I guess create some big show and and, and generate a ton of money. Every little bit helps, um, and as long as you're Fighting the good fight, I think then 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 all is good. and that was you know what we were doing last night was having that show or having that uh, having that party. But with that, you know, I think now we'll go ahead and turn it over to the podcast that's originally scheduled. I have an awesome show for you today. My good buddy Greg Godfrey is on. You might recognize his name as he's been on in the past. Uh, he is one of the owners of Tethered. They, of course, have their new Phantom saddle that is coming out, or that is out <clears throat> as the la- as of the launch of this. Um, they did a, re- a show recently somewhere this past weekend where people were actually able to pick it up, and I believe you can, you can also pick it up on their website now. So if you're interested in a saddle, it's a great time to to, to pick one up so you have the off season to practice with it. But we not only talk about the Phantom, uh, we talk a lot about his hunts this year and stuff like that because Greg, you know, transitioned from being in the military. To um, And he points out to me that it's not retiring. Retiring has a different meaning in the military. But, you know, leaving his military position and working, you know, tethered full time as tethered kind of took off and needed his uh, attention more in a more significant way than he had initially kind of thought. And so with that, he found that he had some free time on his hands to be able to go do some hunts. And so he ended up hunting, I think, five different hunts this year. One was elk in Colorado. He did a Missouri hunt, which he killed a really good deer. Um, Ernie killed a bunch of really good deer too this year. They did, of course, the public land ta- challenge with, uh, the hunting public and Dan Enfalt, Eberhardt, Andy May, all those guys. Um, so we talk a little bit about that as well. So before we jump into the podcast, I just want to say thank you to all of you for listening as always, and have a good week all right folks welcome back to another episode of the truth from the stand deer hunting podcast actually now that I, for, for this guest i'm going to change it for this episode and we're going to call it truth from the saddle because i have on my good buddy
2: mr gay uh greg godfrey from tethered what's going on buddy Oh, man, I'm glad you changed it. I always, you know, we've been on the podcast a few times now and it always bothers me having to come on the stand podcast. So I know, It's a good right? thing you fixed it.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. I got to fix that pesky thing. You know, maybe <laughs> maybe a rebrand or something like that might be in the in the future. I was thinking actually, oddly enough, I had been thinking about just calling it the truth podcast because we're just spitting the truth here. That's all we do.
2: That's a cool idea.
1: You know, so. I figured then we might be able to venture into some different spaces and have some different conversations, which might be kind of kind of cool. So I've been kind of I've been kind of kicking that one around. But for right now, we'll keep it we'll keep it all deer hunting. But I'm super stoked to have you on, man, because I know, you know, we've been, you know, talking via text and offline and, and and stuff like that and got to know each other pretty well over the years. And of course, I've been using the tethered, the the tethered stuff for the past several years and just you know, you turned me into a freak. I'm not going to, not going to lie. You know, I'm sure my wife is tired of hearing about it, me whittling away in the, in the garage, making my own gear and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, but I'm very appreciative of it, but it's super cool to have you back on. Cause we haven't really seen each other face to face. And since like, I think ATA of 2018, I think was the last time we actually saw each other's face. I think you're right. I think it was, um, yeah, it's been a year yeah ridiculous yeah well i have a face for radio so i think you're not missing a whole lot i don't think so yeah me
2: too i know the pain
1: (laughs) nice but i mean i haven't really had a chance to talk to you a whole lot you know just in 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 person via phone conversation since i think you retired from the military so first and foremost i wanted to say congratulations on the retirement and of course a big thank you to your uh to your service but i imagine now you have just a little bit more time to spend in the saddle than you did previously
2: yeah, I appreciate that. You know, it's a it's an honor to serve. And I a, a, a little housekeeping note there for the folks that are veterans that have served in the military. I didn't actually retire, um, but, you know, regular civilians would know that I just uh, I just ended my service um, retirement. kind of means that I did full 20 years. I didn't do a full 20 years. I only did uh, 10 years because this tethered thing happened, but I actually had plans to do a full 20 year uh, career in the army. But like I said, the saddle thing happened and I just had an opportunity that was too good to pass up. And I felt like I'd regret it my whole life if I didn't give it a try. So I ended my service after 10 years, but um, you know, I look back fondly, very fondly on that time and I definitely wouldn't change anything about it. Um definitely an honor to serve in the military. I learned a lot, met a lot of great people, got to experience some cool things that most Americans will never get to experience. So for that I am eternally grateful to the military and you know to just the this, the country in general that pays for uh you know men and women to serve in the military. It's a it's an awesome experience and uh, I'm certainly glad that I got to have it. That's awesome, man.
1: Yeah, I've always been curious, man, was how much of Tethered and like your, I guess, knowledge of, you know, modding gear and stuff like that, how much of that kind of came from the military that kind of poured into the approach that Tethered takes to like their product development and stuff like that?
2: A lot of it, actually. Um, Oddly enough, uh, when I was making saddles back in the day before Tethered was a thing, really before saddle hunting was a you know kind of like a, a recognized uh, and legitimate tactic in the outdoor world i kind of got some inspiration f- from the military for for those of you that are veterans out there that maybe you've you've sat in a in a vehicle with a turret and a gunner in the back they have a a sling basically that's like a hammock kind of that is made of mesh and webbing and I made some saddles that looked exactly like <laughs> that gunner sling from the back of a Humvee, an up-armored Humvee. Uh, so definitely some inspiration was drawn there. And then it, even in some of the products that, that we make, I mean, we use mill spec We use the same mil-spec mesh in our saddles and in some of our accessories that the – that the military uses in the IOTV, the improved outer tactical vest, I think it is basically body armor. The right. same mesh that it's used in that is the same mesh that we use in in some of our products. And, and even the way that we kind of set up some of our timelines and the way that we test things and some of the processes we take have definitely been shaped by the military and the way that they kind of execute training and the way that they plan and manage, uh, event planning and stuff like that. So yeah, definitely. There's no way you can do something for 10 years. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's basket weaving. You do it for 10 years. It's going to bleed over into every aspect of your life. Right. Unfortunately, my
1: ten years was in a rock and roll band, which was didn't apply to normal life at all in any way,
0: shape. Well, that's why
2: you're so metal now. (laughs) It makes perfect sense.
1: I know, right? Today, except whenever you walk into my office at work, and I'm playing like like chick country songs and stuff like that, which I got caught playing some, you know, I think it was Deanna Carter songs today at some point, which was. Which is kind of funny. They just kind of looked at me and was like, really? That's what you're listening to? I'm like, hey, she can sing, man. I was like, well, I'm a sucker for a good female vocalist. What can I say? (laughs) that's funny yeah but uh you know we won't tell too many people other than like everyone who listens to this but anyway we'll we'll, no big deal yeah exactly um but anyway i I know you had saddle palooza man and i'm bummed that i that i missed it again this year one of these years i'm actually going to make it down to that for people that aren't aware to it or aware of it can you just kind of give a rundown of what saddle palooza is is uh is and how it was kind of born
2: Saddle Palooza is awesome. It's a hunt that I started, uh, four or five years ago. Um, I host it here in Savannah, Georgia, actually on a military installation on Fort Stewart, which is an army base, um, here in, in Georgia, in Southeast Georgia. And it's, it's a, it's a free event meaning you know, like I don't charge people to come to the event. It, It costs money to pay for your camping, and for the access to the installation to hunt on the Fort Stewart grounds, and it costs money because get it, I get it, uh, I get it catered essentially with a, a barbecue restaurant. They do meals every night. so, so the people that come and hunt, they, they pay for that, but it's not like a, it's not like we're trying to make any money off of it. But it's just a hunt that people can come down. Uh, let's see the first year we probably had like 12 or 15 people. Then the next year we had 30 or so the year after that I think we had like 75 or 80 and then this year we had 60 something because a bunch of people had to cancel at the end we were actually supposed to change locations and the hunt was supposed to start on Thursday and Tuesday, the campground got flooded. Oh, Literally the river flooded and just totally flooded out the campground. So we had to change it last minute and that screwed up a bunch of people's plans. But we still had like 60 some odd people show up to the hunt. It's amazing, man. It's a Thursday through Sunday and it's really <laughs> what it ends up being more it is more of a you know, sit around the campfire and BS with your buddies than it does into like a hardcore hunt. But right. we killed like 20 pigs. That's I mean, awesome. the pigs, pigs went down. A lot of people had, had opportunities, um, pr- probably at least 50 or 60% of the people that showed up had a legitimate opportunity at a pig. And the other cool thing about it is that it's, it's people from everywhere. I mean, we have people from, Missouri and Texas, West Virginia, Minnesota, Michigan, uh, Ohio, pretty much any state you, you know, we've had probably, I bet we've had most states represented east of the Mississippi. And I mean, pretty much all of them, they've all been there and it's, it's just a really good time. Um, It's a lot of fun and we kill pigs too. So
1: it's tough to beat. Yeah. Not bad when you can bring home, literally bring home the bacon not even figure that's right you know that's awesome i've never pig hunted man that's one thing i want to try and i always i always tell myself i'm going to come down to it and then every year it's like i either forget what time it is or when exactly it is or i'm or i have something going on like this past weekend i was out scouting so i wouldn't have been able to make it i had a trip that was planned and and, and so forth but one of these years you will see my face in a saddle slinging arrows at pigs in the south so i just think it'd be a lot of fun.
2: well we pretty much base it around president's day weekend that's oh, really? the that's the 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 holiday federal holiday in february and this year we didn't um because it it um conflicted with valentine's day Mm. we would have had to host the event on valentine's day i think valentine's day was on friday so we would have it would have been right in the middle of the hunt so we actually moved it this year but i think next year it'll be back on president's day weekend so theoretically a lot of people might have that Monday off work so you can, you know, hunt Thursday through Sunday, then drive home Sunday, and then you have Monday to get your, get ready for work or whatever, or drive home Monday. So put it on your calendar. Now president's day weekend, 2021 Fort Stewart, Georgia saddle Palooza. Making the bacon. Yeah, I won't even charge you for food, man. I w- I will cover your food if you will come <laughs> down and hunt. With me. All
1: right, I got to put it on my calendar. Thanks. I I could have used a trip south this year. The truth be told, I, I need a little bit of a, a little bit of warm weather and a little bit of thawing out is what I is what I think I need in my life right now. So next it's a year, perfect opportunity. That's right. Next year, it's on the uh, on the docket. But uh, but speaking of hunting this year, man, let's talk a little bit about your hunts, man. Because I know you know you had a chance this year with the the change in. You know, career and all that kind of stuff—a a lot more opportunity and time to uh, to hit the timber. And if I'm not mistaken, you went out west this year and were hun- hunting elk. If I if I'm remembering
2: correctly, is that right? Yep, I was very very blessed this year, man. I got to hunt uh, five states, I think, nice. and Montana was one of them. Went on a, a week long elk hunt in in Montana, in northwest Montana it basically on the Idaho border, there all public land. Um, it was a tough hunt, man. We yeah. didn't, I didn't see, I saw one legal bull the entire time I was there and it was literally like the last two hours of the hunt. We were walking down, walking down a logging road and like 40 yards down the mountain, right off the trail, this bull and a cow get up. And that was the only legal bull that I saw the entire hunt. So it was, it was tough, a lot of work, but it's fun being out there, regardless. Yeah, for sure, man. Now, were you with uh, folks who had hunted elk previously, or were you kind of was this a solo mission, or what was the story with that? Nope, I was definitely with uh, people that had hunted before. I actually I went with a guide um, mm-hmm. this time, yep. and Ernie Power, uh, you know, the co-owner uh, of Tethered with him. He he actually went with me. That was our reward to ourselves, if 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 that makes sense. Well, we, when we started tethered a year ago, we were like, man, how cool would it be if we could start a little saddle hunting business and we made enough to, to go on an elk hunt out West, that would just be our definition of success. So as soon as we could afford it, we did it. We bought the guided (laughs) elk hunt. So that was our reward to each other. And it was a, it was a good time. And we, we weren't successful. Ernie actually, he had, um, man, he had a, he had a really bad story. he, they hunted hard, obviously, just like us. And he got on this giant bull. And the guide actually said, when he was retelling the story back at camp afterwards, the guide said that it was the biggest elk he had ever seen in northwestern Montana. It was oh, a man. it was a big elk. And so anyway, so they get on this elk, and it's it's right over the rise. And Ernie like sneaks up to the to the rise, and he kind of stands up at full draw, and he pokes pokes his head up. And he asked the guy, the guide has the range finder and he says, you know, what's the range? And the guide tells him 60. So he shoots him for 60 and it sails way over his back. And oh. so afterwards, Ernie ranged it and it was actually only at 40 yards. Oh man. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So that really sucks. But, um. What can you do? I mean, mistakes happen. Adrenaline is flowing and it's, that's a, that's a tough scenario. That's why they're so hard to kill. Cause yeah. they're just, it's a, it's a crazy hunt. It is, man. It's like, I, I'm actually going
1: back out West this year. I haven't been out for two years. And so I'm really looking forward to going, going back out. It, it's one of those things where it's a grueling hunt. They're really tough. Um, but they're so rewarding. I mean, just to see animals that size, that close is just super cool. I was pretty fortunate. The trip that I made to Montana um, I ended up having three opportunities at three different bulls and just couldn't, just couldn't seal the deal. The one was at 26 yards and literally my buddy and I were standing side by side. And if he broke to the right, it was my shot. If he broke to the left, it was his shot. Cause we were kind of behind a, 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 a big, a big piece of blowdown. And, uh, my buddy was actually trying to call it in for me because he lives in Montana. He was like, I'm going to try to call this bull in and see if I can't get you a shot. And before he could turn around to start walking up the side of the mountain to try to to call, put himself in a position to call to where he could pull him across me broadside to give me a good shot opportunity. Like, I happened to look up and I just grabbed him. I'm like, hey, hold on a second. He's like, what? And I'm like, he's standing right there at like 40 yards. I can see him coming. So he didn't have time to move. So then it was like, all right, well, one of us is killing a bull. And he ended up walking to 26 yards and stopped, stood right in front of us and then bugled and just screamed. And it's like, I don't know, it's the craziest thing to be that close to them when they just let one rip and then he broke to the – you know, our left, which would have been the bull's right, and then my buddy pinwheeled him and he walked forty yards. We watched him pile up and fall down and it was just it was insane. And so it's like that kind of hooked me. I had three chances at I was at full draw on three different mule deer and just couldn't just couldn't release the arrow either. Lost light the one time. He got around a piece of uh uh I guess a piece of brush or sage brush between he and I that I couldn't get a shot and it was kind of long. And then one was a really steep uphill shot that I just didn't feel comfortable taking, so I let down. But it's just a bunch of like almost. <laughs> you know what i mean so i'm chomping at the bit to uh to get back out there but this year it'll be it'll be colorado this year instead of montana with with the old man i got the old man going with me this time which is cool
2: nice that's yeah. exciting yeah man those man i feel like i feel your pain man i i have hunted elk now let's see here one, two, three four five legitimate times. Um three in call three hunts in Colorado when I was actually stationed out there in Fort Carson, Colorado. Uh, I got to go on three separate trips. And then I've had two trips to Montana and I, I don't have an elk to show for it. Now right. it's it's my fault. I actually I actually shot a bull uh two hunts ago and I we just didn't recover it. I made mm-hmm. a bad shot. But um I, yeah five five legitimate hunts and nothing to show for it other than them the the experience and and the mountains kicking my butt but (laughs) (laughs) it was uh i got i got it i got the fever man i want to i want to have that hunt where it's like you hike to the top of the mountain and you hear three or four bulls screaming at daylight i i haven't had that experience yet all the hunts that i've been on have been like a you know, the, the elk have been kind of quiet or, right. you know, a bugle here and a bugle there. But I've never been in that scream fest. And that's what I want. I want screaming bulls. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 almost like they're dinosaurs, man. Like I'm
1: watching and I'm going like this thing is like prehistoric looking like he's got these huge antlers. He's all he's. it's a huge animal. And he just like makes this weird screaming sound. It's just I don't know if anyone out there listening, it's never done it before. It's if you're a if you're a bow hunter or any hunter, but, you know, it, to that point, it's, it's, it's well worth the, uh, the price of admission to go do. Cause it's, you know, especially when you get to be close to them, it's, it's, it's something else. But did you use, did you happen to use a saddle at all while you were
2: hunting elk or was it all purely spot and stock? I did. I went out there with the intention of shooting an elk from the saddle. So I actually spent a day and a half in a saddle. Um, matter of fact, the first time, the first hunt I ever hunted out of the phantom saddle which is the one that tethered is about to release here real short real shortly is um is on the elk hunt i sat from daylight to dark the first hunt of the year in the saddle and it was tough man sitting that long for without kind of getting in in shape for hunting season it was a tough it was a tough hunt and and not to mention i didn't see a single elk or deer all day long so that was not fun
1: yeah, I'll be taking mine on this trip because I'm actually the way this hunt is getting is kind of set up is I have a buddy who lives out there who has a family who has a ranch that's surrounded by a bunch of public. And my dad's of the age where he's not looking for, a I guess, like uh, like a backpack in, you know, back, back country type hunt, which I would be more interested in. So this is kind of like how we how we kind of came to an agreement. It's like my buddy has a place for us to stay. He's got about eight hundred and fifty acres that his family has that we can hunt basically that my dad can hunt. And then he's surrounded by like however many hundreds of thousands of public land acres, uh, their ranches that I can kind of venture off into and hunt. Um, but he's got a couple really good spots of wallows and stuff like that where he sent me some pictures. He actually has a lot of bears, too. So I'm actually going to be getting a bear tag to go along with it. And there's a couple setups he was telling me about that I should check out. And he was like, yeah, he's like, you know, you should definitely bring a saddle for a couple of these setups. Um, he's like, because I think you could have a really good opportunity over them. So I'm going to be. I'm gonna be taking some uh, some tethered gear with me to Colorado and and hopefully maybe be able to put an elk uh, an elk under
2: the uh, other under the tethered name under the saddle name which would be cool. That's cool. If you yeah. can get it on video, as far as I know, you'd be the first one to ever get that on video. That's what I was trying to do. Um, didn't work out though.
1: Right. Yeah. So
2: I'll take a camera. We'll see how long that stays with
1: me because I usually get frustrated with it and ditch it. But we'll uh, we'll make we'll give it the old college try. But, uh,
2: yeah, I, I was, uh, I, 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 you know, fought the good fight, man. I've, I carried the camera every single day and I filmed the whole thing and I, I uploaded it to my YouTube channel. It's just, uh, you go back and look at it now. It's just a bunch of pretty pictures of mountains. That's about it. (laughs) And and Greg walking. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. A lot of hiking. right. Right.
1: So, so after that, man, you know, you went on a bunch of whitetail hunts this year, you know, and the, dude, the tethered team killed it this year. Like I, of course, you know, we were talking throughout the hunting season. I was following the, you know, all the different guys that are, that you, that you guys are close with, or that work, you know, officially with tethered. And there was some serious deer put down this year by, by the tethered crew, but what were some of the things I know you were in the public land challenge, I think was like the first hunt, if I'm not mistaken, whitetail hunt, quote unquote hunt. What did you kind of pick up during that? Because there were some, you know, some some killers on that trip. So I'm just curious if you picked up any tidbits of information along that trip.
2: Yeah, man, that was an awesome, awesome trip. That was the first week of October in Michigan. And that was my first real, real serious deer hunt of the year. And, man, I learned a lot. I mean, how could you not learn a lot when you have Andy May, Mm -hmm. John Eberhardt, the hunting public, and Dan infault in camp. I mean, it was pretty awesome. Um, Andy may didn't actually participate in the hunt, but he talked to us a lot, um, about the hunt and he's right there in Michigan. So he gave us a lot of, uh, a lot of pointers and tips, but we not to, not to plug a different podcast, but the, the tethered nation podcast, we actually released a podcast of that event that everyone here should go and listen to. Cause it's, it's the hunting public, Dan and and John Eberhardt all in the same room together, giving their number one tips for deer hunters. I mean, if you can't learn something from that, you just, you're on, you just, you can't learn anything. You're uncoachable at that point. If, you are uncoachable. Yeah. You may as well give up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean,
1: for me, man, like the, the crew that you just mentioned, you know, and you know, it's like, I've had Zach on the show. It's like, he and I, you know, are, are friendly enough that we text back and forth. Dan's a guy that I text during the hunting season. John I've learned a ton from John and it's interesting I always have this conversation you know just having it this weekend while I was out scouting and we were just kind of talking about how you know you have to adapt your styles to a degree when you go to different different places right because different terrain and different you know states would kind of give you different opportunities and it will also take some opportunities that you're used to away from you and so you're kind of having to try to figure out how does your hunting style kind of fit into what's what's going to work and how do you kind of keep confidence so you don't completely abandon what it is that you kind of that you kind of do and my kind of philosophy is, is I try to take bits and pieces from everybody who I think are, you know, guys that I look up to, you know to I mean? That I'm like, you know, I really like the way, for example, you know, I had Zach on and he and I were talking about hunting from the ground because he's a killer from the ground and he hunts super mobile. So whether it's in a saddle or whether it's on the ground, like he's able to kind of adapt to whatever the opportunity is. Right. And that's one of the things that I'm working on this year is being able to kind of like You know, I've now transitioned fully to a saddle over, you know, the past two years. And so the benefit, one of the big benefits to me and upping my game is that I can wear it in and it's light enough to where if I get to a position where I'm like, here's the sign I need to be hunting crap, there's no trees to get into. It's all brush. And there's like a little grassy CRP area or something like that, where I'm like, you know what? I don't feel obligated to get into a tree because I don't have like this 20 pound stand on my back that I lugged in. So I'm going to get into a tree regardless. I can kind of, and I did this in Iowa. I ditched my sticks in my pack somewhere. I walk in, my saddle's still on me, and I walk into a ground setup, and it's, and it was no more or less effort than I would have had to make if I was walking in to get into a tree with my saddle. And that, to me, was kind of the beauty of it. And so it's like taking that from him and, like, you know, kind of like the aggressive bed hunting from Dan, but then, like, the scrape hunting, primary scrape areas, and, like, you know, with side cover from John, you know, from Eberhart. Like I just try to take bits and pieces from each of them that I feel that I can be confidently execute. And then that's kind of my hunting style, you know, you know, so it's, it's interesting to have all those guys in one place to kind of talk together at once. I definitely encourage people to listen to it.
2: I, I couldn't agree more. That's exactly how I feel like I hunt. I take a little bit of the tactics from John and some of the stuff that Dan talks about, and then some of the aggressive stuff that you see THP doing and, when you when you kind of mix them all together, jumble them up, it'll and then throw in a, a little bit of your local area and how that can change things, what pops out is something that can be effective for anyone, no matter where you hunt. You just gotta mix and match and like you said, take the things that apply from from each person. And it's funny that you bring up that particular story about about you know, having a saddle as your elevated hunting tool and not feeling obligated to climb a tree if the terrain doesn't really call for that. You you mentioned that, um, like you said, Zach mentioned that many times to me personally. Andy May mentioned that several times to me personally as a benefit of hunting from a saddle. And It's not something that I ever really considered until you guys all started talking about it. But when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because you, you, you know, you lug in a tree stand, a climber or a traditional tree stand, whatever you do. I can see where you might feel like, man, I brought this thing back here. You better believe I'm climbing that tree and hunting from it. So I get it and it makes sense, but it's not something, it's not a benefit that I would have talked about before all these killers that i know started telling me that it was a real advantage yeah yeah i mean i think
1: you know look I'm, I'm a football nerd i like to watch football and like what i love about certain teams you know like a defense and i get nerdy with like watching football and like defensive formations and stuff like that is when you're multiple in in football terms and on defense it makes it really hard for the you know, opposing quarterback to understand what you're doing because you're playing multiple fronts mixed with multiple coverages. I kind of think the same way with hunting. It's like, it's a lot harder for the deer to play, to, to be on the offensive with me if I'm able to kind of be multiple in my setups. Right. And so I can now go to those areas where maybe other hunters aren't going. Cause it's maybe, maybe it's like you walk into an area and it's, it's 90% ground setups and 10% tree elevated opportunities. Right. Well, like 95% of hunters are going to probably avoid that place altogether because there's not very many elevated opportunities. And if the sign or the best kill position isn't from an elevated position, then they're, then they're not hunting it at all, right? And so that's kind of why I started looking at it that way. It was just like, you know, there's a lot of places that go unscathed just because there's not the right elevated setup. And it doesn't mean that the saddle doesn't still come into play because I've learned to use my predator platform as, as a seat to some to some degree on the backside of a tree and where the shade is to stay in the shadow, you know, or, you know, even at times being able to use, just get up off the ground a little bit because I need to see over brush just a little bit. Like I want to be, I don't want to be 10, 15 feet off the ground. I literally want to be three or four because I want to see over this little brush line and I'm going to attach myself into the tree and be like four feet off the ground so I can still use the tree as my barrier to my advantage, but it's almost like hunting from the ground. So it's a little bit of the best of both worlds. And I think that to me, Along with all the DIY stuff of making things lighter, using, you know, short sticks and eighters and stuff like that, it was really like the, the thing for me that, um, I, I've said this on the podcast a hundred times, it's, it's tethered kind of created the tools that allowed me to expedite my evolution as a hunter. And, and basically I'm in, am forever grateful that you guys created the, the, the company because it was like one of those things. Once I found you guys, it was my, my evolution as a hunter was like night and day. And, and over the Dude, that of means years. a lot,
2: you know, that you you feel that way. And we've received countless emails and Facebook messages and Instagram messages and, and messages on forums and stuff that from guys that are all kind of saying the same thing. And I don't I don't you know, it's 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 kind of humbling that that a couple of knuckleheads like me and Ernie could start this thing that ended up impacting so many people. It's, it's really cool to see how it's played out over the past 18 months and I got to be honest man based on the feedback that we received at ATA this year and this the the feedback that we've been getting from the hunting community at large I think we're just scratching the surface for what saddle hunting can do for this industry and for the the advantages that that hunters can find when they, when they transition to a system like this. And I don't even care if you, if you use the tethered system or the stuff that I came up with, just, just having the, the saddle tool in your toolkit is Mm going to make hunters, uh, in a general sense, so much more effective. And, uh, I'm excited to see what happens this year, and moving into the 2020 hunting season, I think it's just going to be a lot more efficient killers out there. And I, uh, that's, that's why we do it is to make people more efficient and train people on some, some tools that will make their lives easier.
1: Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agreement. I think one of the things that is somewhat under understated about this, you know, the, the kind of uh, prevalence that, you know, saddle hunting is having now, and I've seen it firsthand, you know, I think it's no big secret that, you know, we talk about hunters, you know, recruitment being lower, hunter numbers are going to down, down, and, you know, the baby boomer generation is starting to age out of things and stuff like that. And a lot of it is because just physically they're not able to, you know, maybe carry a stand or they're setting some presets and maybe they're just not having the luck that they used to have, you know, hunting presets versus hunting mobile, whatever the case is, right? And so I had two instances this year. One, when I was in Iowa, I ran into a gentleman who is, I think he was 66, and he was ground hunting and, you know, I ran into him at the parking lot and he saw me walk out and he was, looks at me. He's, you know, he's like, Hey, I, I, you've been getting after it, buddy. He's like, I've been driving by in the morning at dark. You're already in the woods. He's like, I come by at after dark drive by your truck's still here. You're still in the woods. He was like, you know, he's like, are you actually even ever going home? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm making it home. And he, you know, he was looking at me. He's like, you know, do you have some preset stands down there? And I was like, no, I was like, I'm from out of state. I was like, I'm just hunting a fresh set every day. He's like, well, what are you using? And I was like, I looked at him and I said, I'm wearing it. Like, (laughs) he he just kind of looked at me. He's like, well, what is that? You know? And I had some short sticks and he was like, let me show me those sticks. And, you know, I modified them myself and I was kind of showing him that in the Ater. And he's like, well, what are you actually sitting in? And I was like, well, I'm wearing that. I was like, it's a, it's a, it's a tree saddle. You know, I was like, you know, Tethered makes it. And I kind of, I showed it to him and the ropes and stuff like that and, we exchanged phone numbers and we stayed in touch on the trip and he would text every day, to see how I was doing and, and if I got anything and whatever. And he was super stoked when I finally killed one. And, uh, he texted me, I don't even know what it was. Maybe two weeks after the trip, I got home, he texted me a picture and he just got a, a whole new brand new tethered setup, you know? And, uh, <laughs> which was awesome because like what I had told him was, is I was just like, man, I was like, you know, I know you like to hunt mobile. And this guy was smart. Like he used to hunt with Gene and Barry Wenzel. Like he knew his stuff. And, Oh Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, and I just said to him, you know, I was like, he was, he invited me back for a beer one night after I missed that one big deer. He was like, Hey, why don't you come back and have a beer at my place, blow some steam off. And I went back to his camper and we talked for a little while and I was just like, Hey, I was like, I don't want to be too forward or anything like that. I was like, you know, but you said you, this will be your last trip to Iowa because you're getting older and you just can't, you can't do this anymore. And you know, some of the setups you want to be in are elevated and you and you can't carry a 20 pound stand around anymore. I was like, man. I was like, a saddle will keep you mobile and in the woods for for a bunch more years if you want to, you know. I was like, so, you know, I was like, you might want to look into it. And that was what he did. He went and got himself a pair of sticks that he's modified with a five step climbingator and and a man of saddle. And know, he's ready, he's ready to rock, man.
2: And uh, that's so cool.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's like an opportunity to kind of keep some of those elder statesmen, you know, in the timber longer and being mobile. And I did it with a buddy of mine, Tate. Took him down to our family farm over Thanksgiving and said, "Hey, why don't you try this out?" You know, and he was like, "Yeah." He's like, "I'll give it a try." Cause you know, I, I told him I was like, I, "I'd like," you know, he's the guy who taught me how to bow hunt, um, and I was like, "I'd like for you to be in the woods as long as you can possibly be in the woods and hunt the way you want to hunt." I was like, and he he I know him I know, so it's like I don't I don't pull punches with him. I was like, "Look, you're not a spring chicken, buddy." I was like, so I was like, if you want to keep doing this, it's like you need to find ways to adapt to to make it easier on your body so you can continue to do it. And so now he's all in that's on his list for this off season is a, is a tethered setup. And I told him to, uh, to hold on, hold out for the phantom. Cause I was like, I think he'll, he'll, he'll really appreciate the, uh, the advancements you guys made. So I think that that's really an opportunity for saddle hunting too, as like a, as a way to keep those elder statesmen in the timber.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I know several, um, several folks that are kind of similar scenarios, similar situations. Matter of fact, just in, uh, in, um, at saddle Palooza, I had a guy from Michigan come to Saddle Palooza who was uh he was in his 70s and he basically told me the same exact story that you just you're never counted from your guy in Iowa that mm-hmm. uh, I'm getting older and it was getting harder and harder for me to carry things back into the woods and he said man when I found saddle hunting it's like a light bulb went off and it was it was uh, I I only say this to illustrate the point not because it's actually true but he was like you know he was kind of joking. He's like, you know, Greg, you're my hero because you taught me how to do this through through YouTube and stuff. And obviously he was joking around. I'm not anybody's hero. Yeah, You'd have to be an idiot to have me as a hero. <laughs> but but it's just it's funny that he would say that as a 77 year old man um, saying something like that. It's the reason he said it is because he was so happy that he found something that got him back into the woods that he just. He was so thankful and, and it was really kind of him to say, you know, those nice words to me, but really at the end of the day, it's just cool that some, some, like you said, some of the elder statesmen in our community are finding ways to stay in the woods. That's what it's all about. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Cause I mean, they got a lot to offer, not just, you know, being, you know, role models to a degree, but also being there to help, you know, younger folks along the way to teach them some woodsmanship so we don't lose some of those things entirely when those guys when those guys kind of you know age out of of the woods so keeping them around as long as possible i think is 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 important for our for our heritage overall overall and for me it's it's meaningful you know because i I personally have a dog in the fight with a couple you know older fellas that i like to see you know stay in the woods just because i like to watch their enjoyment of being in the timber and it's quality of life man you know what i mean it's like a day in the timber will erase a really bad week at work you know so (laughs) agree you know but uh you know i want to know man you know so you had a bunch of great hunts last year, you know, your Missouri hunt, dude, you, you, uh, you got on a nice deer in Missouri, right?
2: Man, that Missouri hunt was, oh, it was amazing. Now I have hunted like you and like a lot of your listeners, I've kind of hunted all over the country, man. I've hunted in, in New York and Indiana and, uh, oh gosh, everywhere, Illinois, Wisconsin. I've hunted in Saskatchewan. I've hunted all over the Southeast. I've hunted in Kentucky. I mean, I've hunted... I've hunted almost every big buck state there is except for Iowa and Kansas. And those are on the short list, yep. but this is the first time that I hunted Missouri and Holy cow, that place is amazing. Uh, it was a blast. It not only is the state cool, but the way that we were able to hunt was really cool. So we used bikes to access some, some terrain that was very difficult to access by foot. Um, and it was just a really, really fun hunt. And I ended up shooting my second biggest bow buck ever. And it was an awesome hunt. I got to hunt with a bunch of cool dudes. I got to hunt with Garrett Prawl, DIY sportsman. Nice. Uh, the I got to hunt with Taylor Chamberlain, the urban bowman, the dude that shoots like 300 deer a year and hunts <laughs> know, 200 right? <laughs> days a year. I, I know you've had him on your podcast. Yep. And, um, yeah, so I got to hunt with him. We ended up killing... Let's see. I'm going to I'm going to do it. I'm going to say it wrong, but there was uh let's see. I shot a buck, Garrett shot a buck, Taylor shot a buck, and Ernie Power shot a buck. So there was four. That's four out of who else was in camp? There was six of us in camp. So my brother Bobby was in camp as well, and then Jared Schaefer uh, was in camp as well. And they were the only two that didn't get bucks, but they both saw mature shooter bucks. It just didn't, you know, they didn't come in bow range or they came through too fast or a doe came in and screwed it up or something happened, but it was an amazing hunt. And we actually saw bigger bucks than any of us got on the ground. I mean, I saw a couple pushing one sixty.
1: Wow. Nice. Yeah. That's the, that's the ticket there, man. Like you were out there around the same time I was in Iowa and I remember you were like, Hey man, you know, you wrap up early in Iowa. Why don't you just head on down to, down to Missouri. And I almost yep. did it. It was day six of the hunt when I it missed that. Big. Oh, I, it's like, I literally said that day I was like walking, I was getting ready to walk into the timber that morning. I was like, man, I was like, It'd be great if I would kill a buck today, one, because it's warm and it's gonna get real cold tomorrow. <laughs> so that would be great if I could just go ahead and wrap that up. I was like, and then I could just scoot on down to Missouri and hunt for a couple of days too. I was like, it, life would be good, but uh, I had to grind it out for a full fifteen days. Not complaining, but uh, I was hoping I would be able to get down there with you. Maybe one of these years we'll uh, we'll make we'll make that happen. You know, it's uh, Missouri's on my short list. That's one of the places that I'd like to get to. I think. I made a five-year plan, and Missouri, I think, is uh, year three, because I have a buddy who I'm kind of... Well, you know uh, Chad Sylvester from Exodus. Yep. Yeah, he and I have a five-year plan we kind of outlined together to do hunts together. So the year he'll draw for Iowa, I'm actually going to go to Missouri um, since we'll be split okay. up that,
2: that year. Um, then the other year... Well, I'm going back to Missouri, and it's an open invite. If you want to go, man, it would be cool to have you come down. Um, another funny, a funny story about... Uh, about Missouri before we move on is uh, not, I, I don't want to sound like a, like I'm just trying to sell saddles cause that's not what I'm trying to do, but it's just, it's funny and it kind of goes hand in hand with what we were talking about a minute ago. But we, we were also in camp in Missouri with uh, the folks from uh, first lights, whitetail team mm-hmm. and on X uh, they had two or three guys in camp um, that were, they were all shooting some promo stuff for, the 2020, their 2020 uh, fall releases, and the first day that I'm, I'm not making the story up. There are a bunch of dudes that could verify the story, but the first day or two, they all had climbers and uh, hanging on tree stands. <laughs> and after the first day or so of hauling that stuff through the hills in Missouri, we just so happened to have a few saddles extra laying around. You know, lucky right. for them every single one of them ended up hunting the rest of the trip out of saddles because it was just they realized how much of an advantage it was not carrying that heavy crap in on your back so oh, yeah.
1: now the big question is did you make fun of him first before he gave him the saddle oh yeah, yeah it was yeah. bad it was <laughs> uh, nice nice so man what uh I wanted to ask you now that you're kind of, we're kind of in the off season or in the throes of the off season, you know, I'm always, I'd mentioned I'm working on, you know, a ground game is kind of one of the things I would like to work on and study up on this year. Um, Yeah. I'm just curious if there, is there anything in the off season that you're trying to work on to get, you know, to get better at or add to your, add to your arsenal?
2: Absolutely, man. I am making a concerted effort this year to get better at archery. I forever really have always relied on, Bow technicians and going into the pro shop to make adjustments to my bow and to stuff like that. So I actually bit the bullet and bought some arrow making components. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's even the right the right term, but I uh, you know I bought a uh, an arrow saw and a square and arrow square device, whatever that's called, and a spin tester, and I I got those tools that I need so I can build and flesh my own arrows and I'm gonna before the summer's over, I had to save a little bit more money, but I'm gonna end up getting a press and nice. I'm gonna learn how to do all my own, you know, tie in a peep site and make adjustments and make sure the timing's correct. And I I wanna learn this year, uh, this off season to be better at archery and not necessarily shooting, but all of the stuff that goes into archery in order to make you successful. So and, and that even goes down to like uh like sharpening my my own broadheads. Like I've always just used broadheads and then bought replaceable blades or bought new broadheads. I've never taken the time to learn how to really do it properly and to get razor sharp broadheads. So uh I bought the uh stay sharp broadhead kit which is like super cheap. I I didn't I was reading about what the best tools were and I think I saw a thread on Archery Talk or something about the Stay Sharp uh, whatever it is, but it's like 10 bucks, this little tool that, uh, that helps you get the right angle on your broadheads. And so I got that little thing and I got a little whetstone from Amazon. And (laughs) so I've been practicing all my, all my own, all my old, uh, slick trick broadhead replaceable blades that I've shot through targets or other critters. And I've been practicing on them, learning how to get them sharp. So I'm going to do that. But yeah, this off season, I'm really paying attention to my archery gear and I want to get better at that.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you, man. Like, I started doing that, I was the same, like, where I bought arrows from, you know, a, a pro shop, and or, you know, a buddy of mine back home who owned the shop and stuff like that, and then the past probably two, maybe two and a half years, I started, you know, building all my own arrows and stuff like that, which I just, I just feel like when you do all that work yourself, you're so much more in tune with your, with your rig, and you'll know when something's just slightly off, you know, and um, I would like to get to the point to where I had a bow press and could do my own work on my bow. Uh, the one thing that keeps me from doing that is, you know, Greg Litzinger, the bow hunting fiend doesn't live too far from me and he's pretty aces at setting up bows. And so that usually gives me a good excuse to go sit with him for like a couple hours and record a podcast and learn some, some deer hunting stuff from him while he's tuning my bow. So I haven't given that up quite, quite yet, but, uh, I'm, I'm on the verge of, uh, on the verge of getting there, which is, uh, that's super cool though, man. It's, uh, it's something to take on, but I think it's, you know, I think it just makes you a better hunter whenever you know, your when you know your gear better. All right folks, sorry about that. We had a little technical difficulty, a little bit of internet interference for a third time. I don't know what's going on. Maybe the uh, maybe I'm on the watch list or something, Greg. I don't know. Do you remember the first time we did a podcast that I had your name came up from like somewhere in the Middle East and I was like, "Who is this guy?" Like <laughs>
2: Yeah, it was the old, uh, it was my old Skype profile from when I was in Iraq or Afghanistan and you, yeah, it was, it was a little concerning for sure.
1: Yeah. I was like NSN, NBC, CBS, like all the other, uh, acronyms that mean something, someone's listening to your phone. But, uh, but anyway, so you were mentioning that, uh, You know, you go through great lengths to kind of inspect and modify and, you know, DIY your, you know, any uh, other pieces of gear that you use. Why not kind of go into that kind of detail with your archery equipment as well? Right.
2: Right. Exactly. I mean, if I'm going to spend that kind of time worried about worrying about being quiet in the woods, I mean, I should certainly spend the same amount of time, if not more, focusing on being lethal with my, uh, my archery equipment. So I'm going to do that this year and, you know, I've also, like you said, uh, you've got Litzinger there. I've got my buddy Taylor Chamberlain who helps me with my bow tuning needs. But the problem is, is I have to mail my stuff to him, and I hate it. So right. I'm not ever doing that again. And then where I live here in Georgia, the closest bow shop is like 40 minutes away, and I can only do that so often. So part, partly I'm learning this stuff out of necessity just because – You know, I lose an arrow and I need another one. I don't want to have to deal with ordering one or going to the pro shop. Or if my peep needs a half twist in the string, I don't want to have to drive forty minutes one way just to just to put a twist in my string. I want to learn to do that stuff myself.
1: Right. Yeah, that's the one thing I need to learn to do is those types of things. It doesn't matter how I have it set up, I always end up getting a twist in my in my string at some point, and then I'm always kind of twisting it back, trying to you know condition the string before the season. But it just never seems to never seems to work out. But uh, I want to move on to make a hard transition here. And I want to talk, you know, a little bit about the saddle stuff you guys have going on. I was super bummed this year that I wasn't able to make it to ATA yeah, because I really wanted to see, you know, what you guys had, go- had going on. Because I know we had been talking prior to that and stuff like that. So I knew of the the saddle that was coming. You know, I, in my opinion, I was kind of like, man, how are these guys going to do better than the Manas? Because I just absolutely love hunting, hunting out of it. But I know that you released it, you know, to the public or not for for purchase, but, you know, to kind of let everyone kind of get their hands on it. Um, and it should, I think, be able to you should be able to see it on the site at, at TetheredNation.com, I think, as this podcast drops, because this will drop the first week of March. So I believe the Phantom should be on the, uh, the site specifically. But uh, where was the Phantom born from? Like, what was the thing that made you say, hey, we can do better than the Mantis even? And then what are some of the specific things about it that you guys
2: changed? Well, we basically started prototyping the Phantom. It wasn't called the Phantom. It was it was actually called it was called something different. But we actually started prototyping that basically as soon as we released the Mantis. We, we're I mean we're we're prototyping stuff now that probably we won't release for a year or even two years from now. So that's uh, just kind of the nature of who we are as far as tinkerers and DIY guys. Like we're always playing with stuff. That's mm-hmm. just that's just our ethos as a, as a company and as a group of dudes. So we, we basically started working on the phantom right away and we knew the things that we wanted to accomplish with it. We knew we wanted an adjustable bridge. We knew we wanted to rework the lineman loops. We knew we wanted to figure out a way to make it work for everyone in one size and not have to worry about, you know, should I get a medium? Should I get a large? Because you have so many opinions. I mean, you can get on social media or a forum of, of, of any sort, really. And someone will ask, What size should I get? And half the people will say, You know, or, you know, a third of the people will say, Buy the size they recommend. The other third, sec- the second third will say, Go up a size. You can never be too big. And then the, the last third will say, No, go down a size. You can never be too small. So it's just like, the 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 opinions on what size should I buy, they were endless. So we wanted to eliminate that variable altogether, and we feel like we pretty much nailed it with the Phantom. I mean we had about 25 guys test it over the course of two seasons, and it pretty much checks all the blocks. It went through about five or six different iterations before – we landed on the final production version, five or six. That's probably actually low. It was probably more than that. But uh, regardless, we we landed on the final version, and we've yet to find anyone that doesn't like it. It's, uh, it's a pretty sweet deal. Um, a lot of research and development went into it. A lot of testing, a lot of investment in, in those types of things went into that thing, and we are just excited to bring it to people, and we think it's going to – really, really help people find comfort and efficiency in an elevated hunting system.
1: So what do you guys, like, how does, how does your process kind of, kind of work when you guys decide like, Hey, we're going to, you know, you know, we're going to prototype a new saddle, for example, is it like you guys just kind of get in a room and bounce ideas off of each other? Does, does someone kind of already have an idea of like, well, Hey, what if we tweaked this thing here? You know, how does that
2: creative process kind of work? It's the funnest thing we do it is a total blast. So we have two different communication tools that we use all day. So, uh, or every day, I should say. So we have a group of us that, that, that kind of founded tethered and we kind of internally call that the founding fathers. And it's a group of uh, six or seven of us. And generally, um, either someone in that group or in, or in our pro staff group, they'll come up with an idea and they'll say, Hey, I was thinking about this. And then somebody else, somebody else will think of, think about the idea and go, yeah, well what if we did that, but then we made it this way. And this is all in a, in, in, like I said, two communication channels. One is, is Slack, which everybody knows about Slack. We have a tethered Slack channel that we use for that. And then we use a, a video chat program called Marco Polo. And there's just, thousands and thousands and thousands of these video messages back and forth where Carl will get an idea and he'll send a Marco Polo to the team. And then I'll say that's a stupid idea, but it would be, it would work really well if we did it this way. And then Carl will say, well, Greg, you're an idiot. It should work like this in the first place. And then and then Jared will jump in and Ernie and Josh and Sean and all those guys and Taylor, they'll all jump in. And before you know it, but we've just all spent the last six hours basically <laughs> prototyping this thing, just spitballing ideas back and forth. And then we have you know, we have an ace in the hole with Carl because right. Carl Kasuth, I call him the Michael Jordan of sewing, but really the guy is just an incredible gear maker. He can make anything. I mean, he's built his his last two houses wow. from The ground up by himself you know like he does everything he can make anything and so he'll get it he'll we'll come up with an idea and then carl will start making it and this is exactly how the phantom happened we 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 kind of spitballed a whole bunch of ideas and then carl made the first version and he sent it to me and i got and i got my input on it and we sent it to ernie and we got his input on it and then we ended up you know, we made a couple of changes, and then I think our process was we made like five of them. I think is what we did, and then we sent out those five to different people. And I, I pick people that are big, small, tall, thin, short, whatever. We send them to different people and have them test it, and we do it quick. I mean, this is this isn't like uh, this isn't like you know you're sitting on it for weeks. It's like, hey man, you got one afternoon to play in this thing. Take it to a tree, sit in it for an hour mess around with it, see what you think, and then you have to mail it to the next guy. And then we just kind of bounce these things around between a bunch of different people as quickly as possible. And then we do iterative enhancements to it. And then once we got to a position, uh, got to a place where we felt like it was pretty close, then we made more of them and sent them to people to actually start hunting from. So now they're, they're taking it out on hunts. And then we started expanding our tester base. So we sent some to, we sent some to the guys from the hunting public and we sent some to Kenyon. And then we sent to, sent some, sent one to like some really big dudes that were like on the upper end of the recommended sizing, uh, um, you know, allotment. And then we sent some to small people and we had their kids test it. And so that's kind of what we do is we, we just work through it and then send it out and get a whole bunch of feedback. And then we get everybody's feedback and that's what ended up, you know, working itself and evolving into the final product. So it's actually a load of fun. The hard part is once you figure out what you want, then he goes into the hard part of logistically figuring out how to make it and how to make a whole bunch of them. Right. Um, And, and to make it, you know, in a cost effective way. Right. So you got to figure out that kind of stuff too. So that part's not as much fun for me. <laughs> Luckily I don't have to deal with that. That's Ernie's job. He's the, he's the maker person. So he gets to figure out how to do that part. But, uh, the, the, the prototyping and the figuring stuff out is an absolute blast. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome, man. So, you know, what, a uh, you know, I guess let, let me ask
1: this. It's, you guys have been, I think 18 months, right. Is how long the company's kind of been flourishing and, and kind of pounding the pavement. You know, what what's the one thing that you've learned along the way, you know, since starting Tether that you think kind of sticks out to you as like the biggest learning, learning experience that you've had?
2: Oh gosh. Man, we have learned so much. Um you what you really learn is to is is really more about the logistics than anything. Um I didn't have a whole lot of experience in that. I kind of had a background in marketing and sales. So Mm -hmm. I kind of understood how to do that part and technology. And I I was pretty good at that already. But I what I didn't know was all of the logistics side. I mean, we have stuff. uh, We have stuff made in um, multiple countries. We have stuff that ships all over the world. I mean, and learning how to do all that stuff, we had to quickly scale and learn how to make things in bulk, Mm -hmm. uh, without costing us an arm and a leg, we had to bring on multiple factories domestically and internationally. So we really went from an idea to kind of like a real business really quickly. And I would say the number one thing that I learned was just about making sure that you have the right talented people on your team because they are, the most important thing to Tethered is having people there that are capable and intelligent, uh, you know, more capable and more intelligent than me. And without those people, there's just no way that Tethered could have been a success. So the the number one thing uh, that I would say that I've learned is just the importance of people, honestly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's always you never want to if you're if you're the leader, you never want to be the smartest person in the room you know, it's, if, if I guess are, that's true, I it, never
2: am the smartest person in the room, so I guess I'm good at that.
1: Right. It's like, I never have to worry about that. It's like usually taken care of for me at <laughs> yeah. <from> the beginning. <laughs> but, uh, so I've been kind of, uh, uh, admiring the phantom as I've seen it online and so forth and looking forward to the, the, the day that I wrap one around my wrap one around my behind and slide into some type of elevated setup. But I think when I look at look at it the thing that i'm most interested in i'd like to you know just kind of get a sense from you from you know being at ata and seeing what people were reacting to the thing that i think i'm going to probably like the most is going to be the adaptable bridge Um, i just think that that's a really cool feature that i think is going to solve a lot of you know what people i think have concerns about with like hip pinch or like bridge length and getting your tether height correct because i think that's the one thing like getting into a tree getting that tether height right like sometimes there's a branch in the way and you can't quite get there it's either too low or you got to get over top of it and then it's a little too high and i feel like that bridge is going to solve a lot of those comfort
2: things people might have been a little weary about you're 100% right it does it makes the whole system work a little bit more seamlessly together and it's a it's a really big deal and the other thing that is a really big deal is the, the new shape you wouldn't think it but just changing the shape a little bit actually makes a huge difference in the way that it fits and the way that it wants to ride on your body. So yeah, man, um, we're going to get yours in the mail just as soon as we uh, finalize our, getting our stock on the shelves and you're going to love it. Nice. Yeah. I've already got plans. I had to cut down my, my shooting
1: tree in the backyard. So it didn't fall into my house this year because it died, but I'm planting a 10 foot pole, wooden pole in my backyard just so I can climb and shoot out of it. So I'm i I'm making that investment in my elevated shooting with my, with my saddle this year. So
2: that's, that's a good plan. (laughs) I have a telephone pole in my backyard to do the exact same thing. Yeah. My wife is like, you're just going to put a 10 foot pole in the yard. I was like, you're darn tootin' I am.
1: It's like, so I was like, the neighbors already think that I'm a little off kilter. I was like, so we'll just go ahead and confirm that for them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so I'm curious, man, you know, I know you guys are always tinkering, and you got me all excited earlier this year when you when you sent out a uh, a message, I think it was on Facebook showing you know the looks of a of a stick of sorts that may be um, you know being tinkered with. And uh, so I'm just curious, man, like if you know I don't want you to divulge too much, but anything that you can share, you know what is in the what is in the pipeline for tethered, you know is are some short sticks or sticks of some sort that are super lightweight and mobile in the in the future, and what's that look like?
2: Yeah, we actually have quite a few things in the hopper. Like I said a minute ago, we're kind of always testing things and we are in the uh final stages of of going through a couple different stick options and we will most likely bring a stick to market. Um we've got a few other things that we have to have to work through first. Um we're we're big fans of Dan Infault and 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 his sticks, so we want to try to work with him if we can. So we got to work some of those things out. But uh, we have definitely have some some prototypes that are pretty much ready to go. We just have to pull the trigger and take the risk on how many of them we want to buy. I mean, it's when, when you get to the point where we – I don't know if it's fortunately or unfortunately find ourselves in is we have to be able to buy enough – to support the demand that we have now. And it's no longer, we're no longer in a place where we can, you know, spend a few thousand bucks to get the first couple done. And that's it. Like we're talking like major money. So we have right. to, if we're going to, if we're going to release something, it's quite a bit, quite a big investment for us. So, right. Um. so we got to decide if we, if that's the route we want to take, but we have some pretty cool stuff, not just on the stick front, but we have some other, I can't say too much. Ernie will get mad yeah. at me, yeah, but yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> later this summer um before this hunting season uh a lot of people are going to be surprised at the things that are released from tethered
1: nice well i'm looking forward to it because you guys just you know have been have been evolving the game you know since you guys have hit the market with the with the stuff that you guys put out and it's it's quality stuff and it's just it's good people too so it's always cool to see good people doing doing uh doing good stuff but you know, I, I think like even though more people are getting acquainted with saddle hunting, like you'd mentioned earlier, like the folks that you were on that hunt with in Missouri and the couple older, you know, elder statesmen that I had mentioned that I got into it. You know, what's still the biggest question you guys get about it? Because not just like your tethered YouTube channel, but your also G2 Outdoors YouTube channel. You guys have, you and your, your group in general have done a really good job of kind of educating the public on saddle hunting. What is that one major question that you still seem to always get?
2: it's gotta be, is it comfortable? I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of recurring questions that you get, like, like, can you, there's no way you can shoot from that. Um, what do you do with your feet is another real common one, but I I would say by and large, the most commonly asked question is or statement is that can't be comfortable or, you know, how can that be comfortable? And I mean, you can speak to it more than anyone, Clint. I mean, once you get used to it and, uh, you know i used to always call it getting in saddle shape once your body kind of learns the different uh the different geometry of sitting in a saddle and versus sitting on a, a metal stand once you figure that part out it's incredibly comfortable i yeah. don't want to sit in a tree stand anymore i find the saddle uh, infinitely more comfortable and but i get it from a from a a non saddle hunters perspective. Like I get it. You're only used to sitting in a tree stand or sitting on the ground in a ground blind or in a box blind or something like that. And then you see some dude hanging in a tree from a rope. I get it. How you would think that, you know, that can't be comfortable. But the only thing I can say is, is try it. Find, find a buddy that's got one or go to one of these events that are happening all over the country, you know, and like, I think we're in like, 15 different states this spring and summer and find an event where you can go and try one because if you try one and you give it a fair shake, I'm pretty confident that you will say that it's comfortable.
1: Yeah. That's been my experience with anyone that I've put into my, into my saddle. You know, it's like, I'll just invite people over and say, Hey, you want to try it? Just, you know, come over or meet me at this park by my house and we'll get you into a tree and you can check it out and see for, see for yourself and, Everyone I've done that with, it's like they all walked away going, "I can't believe that was as comfortable as it is." I think one thing when people get into them, like I see a lot of pictures of of, of people kind of leaning way far back in their saddles when they're in the tree, as opposed to kind of keeping more upright and letting the saddle kind of hold your weight, as opposed to using your back and your and your core. Um, that was one thing I just picked up from from John Eberhart. You know, it was just like how far back you're 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 actually leaning into it. And then the shooting part of it, I, you know, I was talking to the couple people that I've turned on to it, and they were asking me about shooting. That's probably one of the questions I get. Once someone kind of gets sold on, like, this is comfortable, I get it, I like it, how can I shoot, shoot out of it? You know, how can I be as accurate? And what I always tell them is, like, the biggest change for me, and it, and it only took a couple times getting into it in my backyard, was just – you have to remember to load your hips. Like your hips are almost your foundation in the saddle versus like your feet and your legs because you should be using, trusting your gear and kind of loading your saddle is when it's the most comfortable, when it seems to work the best and whenever it provides you the stability to take those shots, whatever shot that is that you're taking, whether it's a drop shot or, you know, an over your bridge shot or weak side shot, strong shot, whatever the shot is. Like I always just try to remind myself early in the season when I'm practicing just to remember to load my hips into the saddle and almost press into it and that, I use that as my foundation, and that's what I found to be helpful for me.
2: It's great advice, and you're absolutely right. And the other thing that I would just add to that is that if you're – I know you are, but if, if a hunter is not practicing from a saddle, then you're doing your accuracy a disservice because it's going to change a little bit when you get in a saddle, just like it's going to change a little bit when you – climb into a tree stand and you shoot from a tree stand if you're not used to practicing that way I mean I know when i sat when I hunted from a tree stand years ago i i tried to take my shot sitting down but i almost never brought a chair outside and <laughs> sat down while i was shooting practicing in the backyard I mean it's it's really it's really obvious when you when you say it out loud like oh you should practice the way that you're going to actually shoot during a real hunt like like obviously that's that that is child's play of course you should do that but but hunters don't do it and I was guilty of the same thing you know I I would stand there and shoot hundreds of arrows on 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 my legs on a piece of ground on a flat target you know at the the same same plane as as me whereas I never shot a deer from there, I was always, always, always above the deer and I never practiced that way. Mm -hmm. So it, you just, you can't expect to be as accurate as you should be if you're not getting in your saddle or in your tree stand and practicing those elevated shots. So, uh, I tell people that all the time, not there, there's an added benefit when it comes to saddle hunting is that if you practice from your saddle in the backyard, even if, it's at ground level, but you still practice, you know, sh- taking those shots from a saddle, you're going to learn how to move in the saddle. And that is another important thing to getting your confidence up. And like you said, learning to trust your gear and to really load your hips, you really learn to do that by messing around with it and, and playing with it in the backyard and shooting your bow from it. That's the, that's the best way to learn how to become an efficient saddle hunter is to set it up in your backyard and just go or outside or, you know, just start plinking arrows. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think with anything, you know,
1: you know, shooting, however, you're going to be hunting is, is, I think, I think is key. I think anytime you're changing or making a change or an adaptation, it's like, you know, perfect practice makes perfect. You know what I mean? Yep. It's like, you know, I don't like to say practice makes perfect. Cause you've had bad practice habits, like shooting from the ground, whenever you're not going to be hunting from the ground specifically, it's like, well, that's those are bad practice habits. You should be shooting from however you're planning, plan to hunt. And I feel the same way with a, with a saddle that, and I just enjoy it. You know, it's like, it's just nice, you know, and sometimes I'll get up into a tree, 10 feet. And sometimes I'll just get up off the ground just so I'm two feet off the ground. So I'm not, so my feet aren't on the ground, you know what I mean? Just so I'm having to control my body a little bit differently and use the saddle the way it's supposed to be used. So it's not like you have to climb 20 feet to, you know, to target shoot in your backyard, um, I would recommend getting it up as close to hunting at elevation as, as you can, as often as you can. But, it, you know, if you're able to shoot twice a week and one week or one day can be two feet off the ground and one day can be 10 feet off the ground. then I think that that's pretty, pretty sufficient, but anything you can do just to be comfortable with your gear, I think is just the, is, is the key overall. But uh, Ben, you mentioned the, the teaching sessions you guys are doing. I'm super stoked and looking forward to the tack session that you guys are going to be at. So you guys are going to be, of course, all over the place a bunch of different states you guys are headed to to teach people about saddle hunting they can get into like the gear and try the gear you're gonna have a bunch of stuff there for people to kind of get into and check out but for me i'm super pumped because you're gonna be at the total archery challenge shoot that is just outside seven springs or is that actually the seven springs resort um in pennsylvania which isn't which is you know not far from my hometown so I'm actually going to be able to be there and help you guys out at the booth and help people get into saddles so tell people a little bit about what's going on with that with those sessions overall not just the Seven Springs one but a, but across the the country that you guys are
2: doing i'm actually really looking forward to that Seven Springs event uh the Total Archery Challenge event i've never done it before i've never done a total archery challenge and uh the guy on our team uh Andy May who has done a bunch of those events he he just talks it up like crazy about how much fun it is and how you'll get better as an archer. Um so I, I'm pretty pumped about that. We're we're gonna show up in mass to that thing. We're probably gonna have like ten dudes there. And like you said, we'll have a booth there at the Total Archery Challenge. So we'll have all of our gear there that you can test and demo. We're gonna give one away at the event. They'll give a full setup away at the event. Um but yeah like you mentioned we're we're doing a, a couple different things this this off season to try to help people figure out, you know, what what might work for them. And we're doing kind of doing it a couple different ways. We're doing trade shows. I think we're in six or seven trade shows. We're in Iowa, in North Carolina, a couple different in Missouri. We're in Wisconsin. Uh, we're in Ohio. I I can't remember off the off the top of my head where where are all we are, but we're in a bunch of different states for trade shows. And then we're doing something that we're calling the, the teach and train tour where we're basically partnering with, with hosts all around the country. I think we're doing like 11 or 12 events across the country. We're in, Oh, we're in 20 different cities, uh, this spring and summer. And it's a really cool thing. We're going to send, send the host. Um, these hosts are not, you know, tethered employees or anything—they're just people that like saddle hunting and wanted to teach their community and their buddies, their hunting buddies, about saddle hunting. So we're going to ship them a bunch of gear, and you can test it all out. And then you know, tethered's going to pay for lunch or dinner or whatever it is for whatever time the event is. So you can go and hang out and eat some food and and meet a bunch of, of hunters in your area and then test out all the gear before you actually buy it. Because I—I mean. I'm not an idiot. It can be expensive to get into a saddle hunting setup. No matter, no matter, you know what brand you choose to buy, it can be expensive. Uh, just like it is to get in any kind of real good mobile hunting setup, it's expensive. Yeah. So to be able to try it before you buy at an event like a teaching train tour event is pretty dang cool. So and there's no strings attached. I mean, it's like show up, bring your own saddle hunting gear if if you already have it and you want to help people learn show up with your own gear and teach them how to use that. We don't really care. It's right. more about teaching guys about the benefits of saddle hunting, as opposed to any particular brand, You know, much less tethered. It's, it's not really about that. It's about, you know, teaching hunters to be more efficient and more effective. And, uh, if you choose to buy tethered stuff, that's cool. If not, we'll still, you know, shake your hand and pat you on the back and say, congratulations, see you in a tree. That's the kind of atmosphere it's going to be. So, um, I would encourage anyone that's curious or that has friends that are curious to show up and if nothing else, you know, eat food on me, right? <laughs> Never a bad thing. I'm, I'm looking forward to the tax
1: shoot. I've shot it a couple of times. It's awesome. Seven Springs does a great job setting that mountain up. Rob, my buddy kind of helps put that thing on and he's just a good dude. They put a lot of time and effort in setting up a killer course. Um, I'll say this, you'll be glad that you started, that you've begun to fletch and and build your own arrows after that weekend. Um, cause you'll, <laughs> you'll have maybe have a little bit of a graveyard to c- try to bring back to life after that. I know I always do. I come back with about half the arrows that I go there with. Um, but I think that that session specifically is on May 28th through the 31st, if I'm not mistaken, and I will be there uh, attending as well. So be sure to stop out and say hi to uh, all the, all the, all the tether folks and, and check out some saddle stuff. But man, I want to be sensitive to your time, buddy. I'm, 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 I'm glad you came on. I'm happy to have you on. I'm super stoked to te- uh, check out the the new phantom. I'm super stoked to actually see you at TAC and and be able to hang out, you know, face to face and spend some time with you again. Um, But before I let you go, let people know where they can find out more about you, more about Tethered and what all you guys have going on where they can check that out.
2: Yeah, man. I appreciate it. And I'll always, you know, it's, it's great to come on truth from the stand podcast, even though your name is jacked up, we will still, <laughs> I'm still a fan one day you'll get the, you'll get the memo and change it. But no, in, in all seriousness, yeah. If you want to learn about saddle hunting, you can check out, there's lots of channels that you can check on YouTube. Now, back in the, back in the day, there was only, you know, one or two and my channel was, I was kind of one of the first people that started teaching people about it as far as, at least with video and whatnot. But yeah, you can check out my channel, G2 Outdoors. You can check out the Tethered Nation channel, which is Tethered Nation uh, on YouTube. You can check out the DIY Sportsman. You can check out uh, uh, Flinging Arrows, who is uh, one of the tethered, one of the founding fathers of Tethered. He's got a great, a lot of saddle hunting content. But if you just Google saddle hunting, you'll probably end up at some really useful content. If you want to learn more about, where you can attend one of these teach and train events or what trade shows we're going to be at. That's all listed at our website at tetherednation.com. And yeah, you can probably find out just about anything you want to know about saddle hunting at one of those resources. Awesome, brother. Well, I appreciate
1: you coming on, man. And I look forward to seeing you. And until next time I will, uh, let's, let's stay in touch. And I think there's going to be a hunt in our future. One of these days. There has to be. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you've not yet, hit the subscribe button on the YouTube channel as well. And before we shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, gumleaf Leaf USA Boots, and Day 6 Specialized Gear. And until next time... We'll see y'all.